You're listening to the Dulcimer Folk Podcast. My name is Stephen Seifert. I'm here with Aaron What May. podcast are we listening to? This is the Dulcimer Folk Podcast. I thought it was Dulcimer Geeks. Oh, shoot. Let me start over. <laughs> Hi, you're listening to the Dulcimer Geek Podcast. I'm Stephen Seifert. I'm here with Aaron May. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Steve. Golly, this is great to see you. I know, it's really fun. Uh, we did a chromatic intensive in Nashville, Tennessee. The last three days. Chromatic mountain dulcimer, only chromatic mountain dulcimer for three whole days. It's very controversial. It was wonderful. <laughs> it was really freeing. Um, chromatic dulcimers scare people. They do scare people, but Not they don't scare me. This is, the, a lot of people will say, you know, they find out you have a chromatic. Well, first of all, let's get things straight here. We both played plenty of diatonic. That's true. And I would say that today I primarily play diatonic. I don't use a one and a half typically. I do have the six and a half. But you... I play only chromatic almost all my life. That's crazy. For the last seven years I've been playing almost only chromatic. And that's most of your chromatic. life because you're like 11. <laughs> no, now. Most of, most of my life now I play chromatic for the last seven years. Make sure you're looking at the mic there, Aaron May. Yeah, I'll try. So... Um, I've played it actually a long time, but I've... Yeah, I think you've had a chromatic for longer than me, for sure. I'm just going to guess. I can't do the math right now, but I'm going to say 93, something like that. Nice. Uh, but it was it was a private endeavor. I, before I ever even got into festivals, people were like, this one guy said to me, oh, no, 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 no. Where'd you find a chromatic dulcimer in 1993? Um, my first two dulcimers were from Billberg in Nashville, Indiana. And uh, my second dulcimer had a one and a half fret. Nice. And this one guy, I was at the Bria Craft Festival Fair. I hadn't met hardly any dulcimer people. I just went there to play and meet people. And this guy, you know, he's, he, I guess he was from the dulcimer world. Dun, and I dun, just dun, remember him dun, saying. dulcimer world. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> he said, um, you're going to. He said, people are going to be interested in you in the dulcimer world, but you're going to have to get rid of that one and a half fret. Oh, that's funny. And what was that? I don't know when that was. I actually don't remember, but I'm going to say 92 or something. <laughs> anyway, there's this part of me that likes to do what people say not to do when it comes to the dulcimer. So I was like, I got to get a chromatic. <laughs> I think I remember when you were at Winfield in 99 or 2000 you telling me that you were going jamming and you had your chromatic I had and i don't to, think yeah. i even knew what that meant then hmm. but that was cool now i know what that means well it was a blue line yeah and um somebody's got it out there right now i might like to buy it back if you've got it if you're listening to the show let <laughs> me know if you're interested but it, um, but I've always kept it hidden in the dulcimer. I mean, I've, yeah. I would do a little bit now and then, but mostly... Because people say things like, oh, you've crossed over to the dark side. Right. Or they say, you might as well be playing a guitar. Right. Now, you can take that the wrong way, but really, most people are just trying to make chit-chat and kind of develop a relationship. But the reason we play chromatic is we have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. For me, I play diatonic and chromatic. Mm-hmm. I would never want to be without either. But you, yeah. you've hung out in the the, band, the uh, bluegrass world quite a bit. Yeah, I've spent a lot more time in bluegrass communities than dulcimer communities. Right. So it really seems normal to have a chromatic instrument in all of those circles. 
as opposed to having a diatonic instrument. It's really good for learning about music. Both of them have things that are good about learning from music. Definitely. I think. Yeah. But the, the chromatic's good because you, you get a book on music theory and you can try out the stuff that's in there. Right. You can do all the all you can try all the possibilities. To some extent. With three strings. With three strings. All you can try all the three note possibilities. So what's like in the bluegrass world, what keys do you run into? Does it like if there's a singer, that could be any key, right? It could be any key, but if men are singing, it's usually somewhere between G and B. So a lot of times in bluegrass, they like to sing at the top of their range. That's that high, lonesome sound that Bill Monroe yeah. was known for. And so usually the top of the range is A, B flat, and B. Really? And so the the quote-unquote better, the tenor singer, the higher it's going to be. So you got a really high tenor, they're going to sing in B a lot. Huh. So B is still the hardest key for me on the dulcimer, but I've been working on getting better at B. Um, but but see, everybody still wants to play fiddle tunes that are in D and A. So yeah, so fiddle tunes D and A G, yeah. right? Well, the banjo player always wants to play in G. We have a snare drum near us. I'm going to turn it off. Yeah, it's my voice is echoing off the snare drum. Probably the drum. Don't tell anybody I got some drums. Shh. Yeah, you want to talk about crossing over to the dark side. I think it's the drums. I don't think it's the chromatic dulcimer. I was telling somebody I got some drums, and I was like, this is my midlife crisis. And they were <laughs> like, we're sorry to tell you. You're a little past midlife. Oh. Isn't that hard to hear? That's harsh. They shouldn't have said that. Now, I met you when I when we were both much younger. Yeah. I met you, I think, at Winfield? At Winfield. Yeah, I was 12. Wow. It was 1999. I met you in 99. That yeah. was right before Y2K. That's true. It was. It didn't really seem to happen. <laughs> right. That was. Do you remember when there was the 9-9 of 99 scare? It was in September. It was while we were at Winfield. The world was going to end, some people thought. So did, we went to Winfield and played music. It did it end. end? I don't think so. If it did, then I don't know what I'm doing. Now, there's some people that say it ended, but we can't find those people anywhere. <laughs> But I've, I'm, I was, uh, I remember I was teaching and performing with David Schnaufer. Yeah. And I love this situation because like a year before that or nine months or whatever, it was, it was almost a year. Winfield contacted David about having him. Yeah. And he, I had already, there were a couple gigs where I had kind of handled talking to the festival organizers for him. Uh-huh. So he was like, why don't you call Winfield? So I remember calling Winfield and I talked to Redman. Yeah. What was his name? What is his name? Bob Redman. Yeah, that's right. And um, I was like, hey, I work with David Snoffer. You guys are wanting to hire him, hire him and I want to, um, I want to ask for more money. And I was like 21. That's awesome. And he said, hey, it's good to meet you, Steve. Hey, could you do me a favor and get yourself a paper and a pencil? And I want you to write some things down. And he kind of schooled me on some stuff. And it was really cool. Nice. He took the time to do it. But he basically, at the same time he was telling me we can't pay you that much, he was also kind of... He was... He paid us more. (laughs) <laughs> and it was a good lesson for me. But uh, he said, was well, there anything else you want for you and David? And I, so I got me in on this deal, you know. But, uh-huh. um, I said, he needs orange juice at every event, you know. And right. we had it. 
That's awesome. It was for his diabetes. But yeah. when I got there, there was a pre-Winfield class. Is that what we did? Or yeah, what was it was it? A, a whole day-long workshop the day before the festival started. Was Steve Yulberg in that class? I kind of think he might have been. He might have been, He might actually. not have been. I forget. I think he took it at least one year because you guys were there two years in a row. And I'm getting older to where I can't remember exactly what happened. And so I, he was in at least one of those. But your family, I got to meet your mom and dad. Your yeah. sister was probably there. Because I was 12, so I had to have a chauffeur to get there. It's great. What was, it was, a it was off-site, so yeah. It was, it was really cool. I sat in the front row because I was short and small. I'm still short and small. Not much has changed since I was 12, really. I had my dulcimer. And you remember that I had a little tri-corner stool that I sat on. I brought my own little chair. Well, that's what I remember from when I saw your family out at um, Precious Moments oh, Chapel there. in uh-huh. Joplin, Missouri. Yeah, that was the first dulcimer festival I ever went to. It's all your fault. Because you don't consider Winfield a dulcimer festival. Winfield's it's... not a dulcimer festival. Yeah. Winfield is a folk festival, really. Yeah. It gets called a bluegrass festival a lot, but, you know, a lot of the performers that they hire aren't even really bluegrass. Hmm. Some of them are, but there's a lot of kind of folk. They always have um, John McCutcheon and Tom Chapin. They always have, like, cowboy s- singers. They always have a real big variety of stuff. But... The thing that brings people there is that they have the international and national instrument contests. So they've got auto harp, hammer dulcimer, mountain dulcimer, banjo, mandolin, flat pick guitar, finger style guitar. They have all these national and international competitions. And so really great musicians from all over the world come there. But there's not very many dulcimer players there. It's David, you know, it's... It, now, it's the national competition, or do they call it international? What they call they? it national for Mountain Dulcimer. So far, no one from somewhere else in the world has come, or else they would probably call it international. You know, folks, we need another comp- If we could just get one competition in any country in the world, we could probably... That'd be cool. Um, so you um, you know about David Schnaufer. I think he won the first national competition at Winfield. Yeah, I think that's right. I know he played... Santa Ana's retreat. Nice. And um, had you? When did you first get a dulcimer? I was seven. So how, whatever year that was. That's pretty intense. And when did you kind of decide? I think I kind of want to do this. How old were you then? Honestly, that's David's fault. Yeah. Yeah. David Schnaufer, tell this. David Schnaufer. So I got my dulcimer, and I was the only person I knew who played mountain dulcimer, and we went. Went to bluegrass festivals a lot, and they were in Kansas. Bluegrass festivals in Kansas. There were never any mountain dulcimers ever. I didn't know anyone who played mountain dulcimer at all. And so I was right at that point when, I don't know what year it was. I was either eight or nine when David came to Winfield just by himself. And um, they have this program at Winfield called Acoustic Kids. And back in those days, you could submit a cassette tape audition with a song or two on it. And then if you got approved, then you, um, Andy May runs it. And he's really great at running this kids program. You would get to play on the main stage at Winfield, which was super cool for an eight-year-old with a mountain dulcimer. So I've got this mountain dulcimer and I know how to play like two songs. And so I get to play on stage and my dad 
is not afraid of talking to strangers and people that I think are, you know, better than me and I would be afraid to talk to them. But dad talked to David. And so we happened to be walking through the craft fair and David was hanging out at the McSpadden booth. And my dad's like, hey, look, that's David Schnaufer. Go talk to him. And I said, no way, I'm way too embarrassed to do that. But my dad went and talked to him and said, David, I want you to meet my daughter, Erin. She's learning to play the dulcimer. And by the way, she's sat at the front row of every single one of your concerts because she wants to hear you. That's great. And she's playing tomorrow morning at this Acoustic Kids thing. And you know what David Schnaufer did? He showed up and sat in the front row of my concert. Awesome. My two songs I knew how to play. And then he came backstage and he talked to my family and said, hey, would you mind if I gave your daughter something? They're like, okay. So he, br- he brought back his book, Swing Nine Yards of Calico, and he wrote inside of it a little note to me and oh, gave me the cassette tape. And I spent the entire next year playing Wildwood Flower because that's the first song in the book. I played it so much that my sister won't even play Wildwood Flower ever now. <laughs> But I think like that was the, a point when I probably would have laid down my dulcimer if somebody hadn't come along to encourage me. And it, it, oh, yeah. and it was David, you know, he was there. And because he took a little extra time out of his day to show up at this thing where I played two songs and give me his book, like I was never going to not play dulcimer after that. I mean, I first heard him when I was 16. Yeah. And probably... Probably when I was 17, I went and saw him in concert in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Totally a game changer for me. Yeah. And um, I feel like I was a Winf- not a Winfield kid, a dulcimer kid. A dulcimer kid. I felt kid. like a dulcimer kid, a, a schnoffer kid. Yeah. Totally excited about him. Mm-hmm. And... Um, when I got I got swing nine swing nine yards of calico from him when I met him in Nashville I believe I could be wrong about this um but just looking through that book it was like whoa I know it's so cool when I saw him in concert I remember he capoed a lot he checked his tuning in between all songs I think he even tuned while he was playing at one point uh huh he went back and forth from three to four string. Oh. I don't know that you got to see him do that much. I don't remember that. Huh? But you said you saw him in Winfield when you were really young, too. Yeah, it's possible that I don't remember very much of that. Well, he he would tell a story as he went from three to four string. Then he would do his four string stuff. Usually capo to four. I did one capo to three. Um, and then he would tell a story as he went back to, uh-huh. you know, three string, even though the melodies doubled. Yeah. But I loved meeting your family, and um, your sister was super young, then. she was just... Yeah, she's two years younger than me, so if I was 12, she was 10. She was a little rut. <laughs> Don't tell her I said that. No, I mean, she was great, but she was just... She was the little kid running around, but you were, like, crazy. But she got crazy into music. She did, by. yeah. I took her... She always wanted to play fiddle from the time she was really young, but then whenever other people were around, she got really bashful and didn't want to play in front of them for a long time. And I was just like, anybody who would... Anybody who knew what a dulcimer was, I was all about getting as much information as I could because there just weren't people in my life who knew about dulcimers. And, and so... When I met you when I was 12, you told me about dulcimer festivals and said, hey, you should start going to dulcimer festivals. And I, and 
I had I corrupted you. I had Bonnie Carroll's book, Dust yeah. Off That Dulcimer and Dance. Before There's that, some cool stuff in there. She had all these pictures in there. Yeah. I remember I learned Red Hair Boy out of that book, and I play it almost just like it was in that book. But that's the only song I remember out of the book. But she had all those pictures of dulcimer the gatherings. Pictures were amazing. All the West Coast gatherings, and I remember looking at all those pictures and wishing longingly, I wish I was alive then, when there were <laughs> ten people that played dulcimer and not just two. Right, that's I had funny. no idea, you know, that this whole world existed. Well, Lois Hornbostel also had a lot of pictures in her books. I never had any of her books. Well, they were black and white, and I um, a huge reason that I got into dulcimer deeper was I would look at these pictures and I would think. Oh my gosh, you mean people get together to do this? Yeah. And I was like, but I remember thinking that was all in the old days. Right. Because some of the first pictures I saw, I went to the Cincinnati Public Library and they had a whole bunch of old editions of the Dulcimer Players News magazine. Wow. So I would look in these pictures and look at the years and, but, um, Eventually, I got into some of the newer ones. So I'm looking, you know, I'm in the 90s. and But I was just, I was like, I want to be a part of this. I was going to summer camps and stuff. So it was like, uh, this looks like camp for adults. Yeah, I think it is. It blew my mind to find, so that I can meet all the people in those pictures. I know, right? There was one guy I still haven't met. There was a dude uh, in Lois Hornbostel's book, a Japanese guy. I forget what his name was. He said, I love dulcimer and I will take it with me wherever I may go. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was a dude, Christy, in one of the pictures. I haven't met him. And, um, and I, you know, just all the old magazines. Uh, Randy Wilkinson I'd like to meet. I don't know if that'll happen. Um, I got to meet Roger Nicholson before he died. That was really cool. Nice. I got to meet Alan Freeman. Yeah. Um, he's an interesting cat. And he just passed away recently. Hmm. I remember I was online recently and somebody said um, that he was a really sweet man. And I was thinking, we can all say that. But I don't know that Alan Freeman would appreciate being called sweet. But anyway, I got to meet so many cool people. Yeah. And David Schnaufers, you know. I mean, geez, well, Pete. Um Gene Ritchie. Yeah, I didn't get, ever get to meet Gene. Gene was cool. I think I've told this story on the podcast, but I was at a an event in Berea where they were honoring builders, and only one of the builders they were honoring was still alive, Warren May. Mm-hmm. But Gene Ritchie was living in Berea then, and this was just a few years ago, I guess. But, um, yeah, I guess it was about three, three years ago. She showed up at this gathering... And um, one of the dulcimers on the wall was made by um, uh, Homer Ledford, and it was mm-hmm. a chromatic. Nice. So when the whole talk was done, and by the way, the people of Berea, they, ha- they have student workers who their only job is to keep you from touching these dulcimers that are in All the right. collection. They uh-huh. do a great job of it, and I, I appreciate what they're doing, but... You know, Jean walked right up to that chromatic at the end of all this, and she said, do you mind if I play this? So they let Jean play it, and she sat there, and just without even blinking, I forget what she played, but she played a tune on that chromatic dulcimer. That's awesome. She didn't look nervous. She didn't look uncomfortable. And I can only, I really think she must have played chromatic before. Huh. 
you know. And That's it was, awesome. She had a, you know, she was kind of sick then. Yeah. But she had a look on her face. It was full of energy, like, she, it, almost like she was saying, don't forget, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. who, who mama is. <laughs> it was so great. I love that. Huh. So, um, you listen to the Dulcimer Geek podcast? I do listen to the Dulcimer Geek podcast, usually while I'm cleaning my kitchen. That's disturbing. I wash dishes and listen to my friends talk about Dulcimer Geeky stuff. Most days it makes me really happy. Sometimes you talk about things I don't care about. (laughs) Dan says the the first rule of Dulcimer Geek podcast is you don't talk about Dulcimer Geek podcast, you know, while recording, but... Um. It's I think neat. it's fair because I'm a guest. I'm not the usual person. So I think you can break the rules. Well, I think it's neat that you get to hang out with us via the podcast. I, me too. We don't get the feeling that we're hanging out with you. So this is kind of nice to bring it full circle. That's true. Because I live in Kansas, so it's kind of a long ways from Tennessee. I don't get to hang out here a lot. You got to. You went through some heavy stuff like roughly 10 years ago. Is, That's is, right. What, there's an anniversary coming up. What, what yeah, is that? this week I celebrate 10 years of being a cancer survivor. That's fantastic. Yeah. I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma when I was had just turned 20. And now it's been 10 years. I'm thankful. Me too. I, th- I feel like I get to celebrate this whole year because this whole year is like, hey, look, I'm 10 years a cancer survivor. So I'm just going to celebrate the whole year. If well, you see me waving around balloons and banners and stuff, that's why I'm celebrating. You were a big deal uh, the way you radiated sunshine when you were <laughs> sick. Well, I'm glad that it felt like that. Well, well, I'm sure it didn't feel like that to you, but Not I mean, always. you were a big encouragement. I remember talking to you every once in a while while you were yeah, going through all that, and yeah. I would be having a bad day, and you would be telling me to enjoy life. That's my motto. <laughs> <laughs> enjoy life. So There's always something bright to look at, right? Yeah. Um, and I played my dulcimer a lot during that time, too. I lost all my calluses. You know, that's one of the side effects of chemo is that all rapidly dividing cells die, including... Oh, yeah hair follicles which is why you lose all your hair and skin skin regenerates faster than normal so i lost all my calluses so whenever i wanted to play my dulcimer and i was always like a little bit nauseous like when you have when you have the flu and like you're getting better so you're not throwing up all the time but you're just a little nauseous all the time that's kind of how i felt the whole time i was on chemo so i was a little bit nauseous all the time and so strong smells were like, nah, I didn't want to be around them. But whenever I wanted to play my dulcimer, I would get that liquid Band-Aid stuff. And I would plug my nose and I would okay. paste it on my fingers. And then it was almost like I had a couple layers of calluses. That's a good tip for somebody out there, maybe. Yeah. So I tell people if your fingers are getting sore, a layer to a liquid Band-Aid, that will kind of help. Because... It takes a while to build up calluses, and I didn't have calluses that whole time. And then six months after I finished chemo, all my calluses were back. In- but you had a book, right? Or something? What was that? I kept a blog the whole time. Yes, And I was blog. sick. So, I, yeah, I would write on my blog stories about what I was learning and how I was growing, what I had been thinking, because it turns out when you don't feel like doing much, you have a lot of time to think and write stuff. So that was a, I, I tend to process things by writing words down. So that was the way I processed. And it was a way, because there were a lot of people who wanted to know how I was doing, but they didn't want to call and bug me if I was sleeping or something. So my blog was a way. 
I realized when you were sick, I had a, I learned some things about myself, and it wasn't just you. There were some other people that got sick around that time. I wanted to. Well, first of all, I just believed a hundred percent you were going to be fine. Yeah, me too. And I think part of me wanted to. And I'm telling this story because some of you out there who get sick, you got to know there's goofballs like me in your life. I wanted to kind of look away, Mm -hmm. believe you're going to get better, look away, knowing when I look back, everything was going to be fine and we could all move forward. Mm -hmm. But um, another person in my life who was going through cancer, that, that wasn't received very well. They... All they, you know, I was really just scared of losing them. Yeah, I I was really thankful because I had a couple friends in my life who were able to be really honest with me and say things like, I want to be there for you, but I have no idea how to. And my instinct is to just not call you and not talk to you because I don't know what to say. And I'm afraid of saying the wrong things, but I feel like I need to show up anyway. And so it helped me understand, like, the people who weren't staying really connected to me in that time, like, that's why. Because everybody's afraid. Like, you're afraid of saying the wrong thing, and so you think, well, if I don't say anything, then I won't say the wrong thing. And for me, like, the presence of people was real helpful. Um, but I can give a lot of grace to people who who didn't have that, like, immediate presence as part of that time in my life because it's hard. It's hard to know how to how to do it. But and it's, we got a lot of people around us, and yeah. there's going to be people who are sick. But I, I was just, you know, I we ended up talking a number of times. And we it, did, yeah. It was just encouraging. And we mostly talked about dulcimers, I think. Of course. What else? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, your sister, you and your sister, Amber. Yeah. Who's recently married. She just got married. You're both married, so We're both your married parents now. did a good job with you. You know, guys. our last our last names now are Lewis and Clark. Are you kidding me? I'm serious. Isn't that funny? Now wait a minute. It's true. Say again what? Our last names are Lewis and Clark. Well, tell me the, all the names. What? What? I'm Erin Mae Lewis and she's oh now goodness. Amber. You're gonna Clark. kill me. But I was thinking your new last name was May. May, no, that's my middle name. Oh my god. I so was, I use Aaron May for all my music stuff because I think it has a nice ring to it. I'm thinking his name is Justin May. <laughs> oh, no. Our last name is Lewis. Your name is Aaron Lewis? It is. And her last name is Clark. Yeah. I think it's good because you guys were adventurous even when you were younger. Why not continue the trend? I know. I think we're going to have a lot of adventures. We have had a lot of adventures. Yeah, talk I've about that. I've had a lot of adventures. You and her were road dogs, right, for a while? Yeah. So after I made it through my cancer battle she and i went together to south plains college in loveland texas and we went through a program called a commercial music program our emphasis was in bluegrass my emphasis was in mountain dulcimer but i was a piano major on paper whatever i played a lot of dulcimer there i learned a lot of stuff about you played with the bands i played with a lot of different bands ensembles and it wasn't just bluegrass right bluegrass and irish i played several different jazz ensembles i was in like a contemporary christian worship ensemble i was in like a top 40 hits ensemble where we played a variety of music it was fun but you were like one of the so you couldn't actually major in dulcimer yeah, because on paper, you had to be able to go through the juries that the state 
state had set up, right, the music juries, and there wasn't a dulcimer jury. So I had to do my juries for piano. But, but I, most I of always, your work was dulcimer. Yeah, I always played dulcimer in the ensembles. I took dulcimer lessons from a jazz guitar player. I took dulcimer lessons from Joe Carr, who plays mandolin and guitar. I took um, dulcimer lessons from Ed Carr, who taught fiddle, and from a banjo player. So, like, every semester I would take a dulcimer lesson from somebody who played another instrument and just try and figure out as much as I could about what they did on their instrument and how to do it on mine. It's pretty awesome. It was really, really cool. I mean, I still think of you as the first dulcimer major. I think I I I count as a dulcimer major. Now, I could be missing somebody. I don't want to miss anybody. But the second dulcimer major, in a manner of speaking, is Sarah Morgan, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. I think she's she's rocking that. She's at um, Moorhead. Is that a four-year program or a two-year program? I think she's getting a bachelor's. I could be wrong, but I think so. See, I just have an associate. The Moorhead Center for Popular Music. I was just with her last week, I guess. Yeah. Sarah's really Cool. She's I'm amazing. excited but to see what she does with it. So you you were on chromatic in the school program. I did. I switched back and forth between diatonic and okay. chromatic while well, I was there. Good. So I would play my diatonic for things that I could play diatonic, and then when I needed extra notes, I would play my chromatic. And in my jazz ensembles, I would play my chromatic. And so I was just starting to kind of figure it out. I graduated from there in 2010. Amber and I both did, and. Um, there were two things we knew how that musicians usually do. One is go to a city where there's a lot of music. And we had a friend in Denver who said, why don't you come to Denver? It's relatively close to Kansas, and there's a lot of music there. Let's come, let's check it out. And he said, you can stay with me and my wife for a month and see if you like it. So I got my David Beattie dulcimer. Oh, yeah. My chromatic David Beattie. And I had a Modern Mountain dulcimer diatonic. And I took those two instruments with me to Colorado and right before the first gig we had, my Modern Mountain Dulcimer headstock broke off probably from the dry air in Colorado. Well, you have a history of breaking I have off a history headstocks. with headstocks. We shouldn't talk about that, but I have a history <laughs> with breaking headstocks. <laughs> Almost all my Dulcimers have lost their heads at some point. So it's you hard probably, to lose your head now. You then. probably don't want to loan me your Dulcimer. I'm just saying, you probably don't. You have, which is probably dangerous. So what's... Well, what, regardless of what kind of dulcimer you're playing, when you're playing with, let's talk about different styles. When you're playing okay. with a jazz group, yeah, uh, what role did you play in the jazz group? I mean, was there a guitar? Was there a piano? Uh, sometimes I was playing the guitar role, but actually I was the only person at the school at the time I was there who could play jazz piano. So if I was playing dulcimer, there wasn't a piano at the time. Um, so one ensemble that I was in was like a, all acoustic instruments. And so there was a mandolin player and I think a guitar player and a bass player and a fiddle player and me. And, you know, we were really just very early in our exploration of jazz. And so we were just trying to figure out how to like play chords that had more than three notes in them. And But you were learning on piano it. legitimate jazz stuff. Yeah, I don't remember any of it now, but I'm pretty sure I knew how to play quite a bit of jazz stuff on piano. But the whole time, this is what's funny, the whole time I played jazz, all my teachers would say, 
you're doing so great at this. You're really awesome at jazz piano. And I thought, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm completely lost the entire time. And it's all going to fall apart at any instant. That's how I felt the entire time I played piano. I think when, you know, students need to hear that. Because when I was in the jazz program playing piano at University of Kentucky, and you probably did a better job than I did. (laughs) I don't um, know. You constantly, I was constantly scared to death. Oh my gosh, it's terrifying. Jazz is so hard. And you, you know, if and you, you grow think, up with it, it's different, but it's like I was just slung into that. I mean, people say, oh, if it's jazz, you can play any notes. All the notes work, which is probably true, but you have to know what to do with all those notes. You know, notes, the only people that really say that are They turn out players. really bad because <laughs> you can use any note. And th- my teachers actually told me one of the things that great jazz musicians do is practice every solo starting on every single note of the chromatic scale like they literally start a solo on every note including the most dissonant ones because it's not what you do it's not the note that you're playing it's what you do after that that matters but you really have to know what to do after you play a note or you're in trouble and you know what when you play the note after the note you just played then you have to play another one after that that's the hard part (laughs) that's the hard part what about um what about bluegrass like what what are some of the challenges playing bluegrass? Because it's very formulaic. You got guitar, mandolin, banjo, bass, yeah, so vocal, fiddle. A lot of times I feel like I'm playing the mandolin part. And part of that is because my dad was learning to play mandolin when I was growing up learning to play dulcimer. And so my biggest influence in my playing really was my dad. Him learning to play mandolin was teaching me a lot of stuff about dulcimer. So I very naturally and easily play the mandolin part in the band. But well, that means like chops and stuff. Yeah, a lot of chops and like some of the some similar kind of melodic ideas to what a mandolin player often chooses. But one of my ensembles was called the Doug and Tony Show. And we did like David Grisman and Tony Rice stuff and like Newgrass Revival and Sam Bush well, and Bela Fleck. Doing that a little more. It was it was really fun and it was all really hard music. And in this ensemble, we had a fiddle and a mandolin and a bass and a guitar. I can't remember if we had a banjo player or not. But we pretty much had all the instruments in the band. And so I'm listening to all these records. And the only part that wasn't being covered was the dobro part. So I ended up transcribing all of Jerry Douglas's banjo so- or dobro solos in these pieces and trying to figure out how to play the dobro parts on Mountain Dulcimer. That's crazy. It was crazy. But what, what? where do you feel like you're coming up short when you play with bluegrass? What are the challenges? Like Sarah Morgan talks about, she's working a lot on, um, you know, a lot of those guys play around one mic. That's yeah. a trend you see sometimes. So they are all at a certain distance from the mic, and when they go to take a solo, they step in a little bit. Right. Which well, is, she's got this thing on her lap. Yeah, that's one of the. That's so their solution is they've got her a volume. They actually have a switch, not a volume pedal, but a switch, and it just knocks her up a certain amount of decibels. Yeah. But w- what are some of the challenges like working with those people? Yeah, part of it is getting everybody to actually get quiet when you're taking a solo. I think that's part of it. Um, One challenge is to find your space as far as... So I do a lot of syncopated rhythmic stuff. I think part of that is because the guitar player is playing bass, drum, bass, drum, bass, drum. The bass player is playing bass, 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 bass. The 
banjo players even either playing eighth note rolls where they're just playing constant eighth note arpeggios or they're chopping on the backbeat, the twos and fours. And the mandolin player is almost always chopping on the backbeat. The fiddle player is either playing single note melodic lines or two note chop chords. So I can play chops, which is good if the fiddle, banjo, and mandolin aren't also all playing chops at the same time. Because then that's too many chops. That's too many chops. So if the banjo player is doing their eighth notes, then maybe I can do my chops. But if all of them are doing chops, then i got to find other space. So a lot of times I would do like syncopated rhythms kind of around the beats. And so I think that's one of the places that I found my spaces. You were looking for a way to get into it. Right. I'm looking for the empty spaces. And so, sometimes those were it. So I imagine sometimes, like, since everybody can't be doing chops, somebody might start doing chops. But then they know to hand it off maybe the next verse to let somebody else do chops or what? Yeah, there's some of that. And sometimes like the mandolin player is doing chops in a high range. And so I might do chops in a lower range. So you're getting like two different ranges of chops now because the guitar player maybe is filling in some of those lower frequencies but letting their strings all ring. So if I'm chopping in low range and the mandolin's chopping in high range, that's a way that we can both be chopping without being in each other's space. I mean, when I've played with bluegrass groups which hasn't been very often but i sometimes i mean it's different if it's just me and one or two people but when you're actually in a band situation yeah i actually feel a little out of place i feel like i'm trying to speak french at a german festival (laughs) i mean i don't know it's like i'm bringing this instrument to the table and everybody's like that's not part of what we do yeah, I didn't. I just didn't know any better, you know, because I started showing up at these festivals when I was seven, eight, nine, ten years old with adults. That's right. I just really, honestly, didn't know I didn't belong. I didn't know there were limitations. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be able to do all of this. I really didn't. I just did it because that's the instrument I had and that's the setting I was in. When you're a kid, see, you don't think about all this stuff about, like, where do I fit and why and how and whose feet, whose toes am I stepping on (laughs) and who am I offending? And I didn't think about any of that. I just wanted to play. It's better. And I was a kid. So I think most people, I mean, some people wrote me off because I was a kid and it wouldn't matter to how great I was. But some people were going to let me play along no matter what I did because I was a kid. And so I was cute and... Now, when you got to take a solo, when you got to take a bluegrass solo, like on a diatonic dulcimer, you're you're using, like, so let's say you're in the key of D. You're going to be using a whole lot of just regular D major scale notes. Right. Um, But when you listen to bluegrass, especially when I listen to, like, guitar solos, like, they're patterning themselves after uh, Tony Rice, Clarence White. Mm -hmm. So there's a blend of whatever key you're in, like D major, but you're also going to hear blues scales. You're going to hear things that remind you a little bit of bebop jazz. Mm-hmm. There's this. So when you had to take solos in a bluegrass setting, I'm just asking because I've had to deal with the same situation. I'm thinking to myself, I don't have those notes. I mean, that's probably one reason the chromatic became interesting to you. Yeah, although I still think about my chromatic diatonically a lot of the time. Because I'm just thinking about what, how can I play in B and not just in D without having to retune all my strings. Yeah, you said something that, about that earlier that you, you, the best part of the chromatic for you 
has often been just being able to play in any key. Yeah. But you still tend to stay in the key you're in. You're not using chromatics as much. Right. Yeah, that's my that's been my approach to it. So most of the songs, the melodies themselves and the tunes, the melodies don't have all those chromatics, chromatic right. notes in them. So that's the fancy lick stuff. And because I was playing a diatonic dulcimer, I couldn't do that kind of fancy licks. So I'm trying to come up with other kinds of fancy licks. And one of the things that the mountain dulcimer has that all these other instruments don't have, the banjo a little bit has this drone concept where you can use your other strings to kind of add color to the melodic things that you're doing. So I actually had this light light bulb moment when I was trying to improvise, but I was trying to improvise and think about my chords and cover all the right strings and keep my drone going. And I realized no one else plays on all their strings at once. They only play single That's line super, stuff. That's super, super important. Right, the guitar player is playing one note, at, one note at a time. They're never playing three notes at a time. And the mandolin player is playing one note at a time. And the banjo is kind of different because they are more often playing out of, they're in an open tuning and playing out of chord shapes more. But they're also using all three fingers. And so if they're playing three notes, it's because they're doing these rolls with their right hand to get all of them. So I try to use my my drones and an occasional like chord across the strings and stuff to fill in some of the gaps. And that's one of the things that makes the dulcimer sound different than all the other instruments. Um, I mean, you, you, yeah, so a lot of times... See, in the bluegrass setting or any band setting, you you sometimes want to leave space for other people. Yeah, right. So sometimes dulcimer players get into a band situation, and we just make this constant wall of sound. Right. And so learning how to play with like left hand mutes, right hand mutes, dampening, single string stuff. A lot of staccato. But you said uh, earlier today we were teaching, and you talked about you want to sound like a dulcimer. Yeah. So you still try to fit that dulcimer sound in. Right. But what not makes, all the time. Right. What makes a dulcimer unique? Well, our open tuning and drone strings is one of the things that makes the dulcimer unique and makes it not sound like a guitar or any of the other instruments. So, yeah, I want I want people to get to hear that sound, but I'm not going to use it all the time because, for one thing, it's too hard to think about all three strings all the time. So if it's changing chords out of whatever key my drones are in, I'm going to stop droning for a while and just play single note stuff until I get back to a place where I can add the drones in and they'll sound nice and it's easy. So Sarah Morgan, you know, I just mentioned she, she well, she has a, a BD. Yeah. She's got other dulcimers. I, I think her BD has a K&K pickup in it, I think. And she's... um. But what, what's your solution been for, for you know, for performance. Able to amplify? Yeah. Um, I've never loved pickups. They can be convenient, but I've, I, I've never had great luck with a pickup that didn't have a lot of feedback issues with monitors. So in the bluegrass world that you were hanging out in, they would pipe a lot of sound into the monitor. Yeah, we were using monitors frequently and... If you're using a large diaphragm condenser mic, actually a pickup can be really nice because you're usually not having monitors 
because monitors and large diaphragm condensers don't work great. So if you're doing like the single mic setup, where everybody's around it, and then, then it you having, have a pickup. Yeah, the dulcimer with a pickup that can work pretty what well. What kind of pickup? I don't see. I've never had good success with one. So I got my BD with no pickup at all. Because anytime you add a pickup, you compromise your acoustic sound a little bit. And it was important to me that when I'm on the porch or I'm in the backyard or I'm at a jam session, I've got, or in a recording studio, I've got the best possible acoustic sound. And then I have a DPA, uh, I think it's a DPA 4900. Um, very small diaphragm clip-on condenser mic. So this is a microphone that was cool developed for symphonies where they're trying to get the most, the closest possible sound to what the instrument itself sounds like. So the least change in different frequencies. And like I've seen one of these clipped under the, the is it called the bell, like on a saxophone or right, something like yeah. that? And, um, it's cool, this little black flexible yeah. stuff. And so it's a really, really tiny little microphone that clips on. So the downside of it is that you have to be using a system that has phantom power because it is a condenser mic. That means it sends electricity down the mic cable. Right. So some of those little like portable amps that you can just set at your feet, they wouldn't pass phantom power. They wouldn't be able to send phantom power. So in a jam session, I'm going all acoustic. I'm not but amplifying. You could buy a little phantom power unit. Dan Lander must tell me about those. I've never used one. Yeah, I feel like the technology, even in the last seven years since I was at the college where we were exploring a lot yeah. of the sound options, I feel like the technology has improved a lot even in that amount of time. And I just haven't explored it that much because, to be honest, like that's not a part of the dulcimer geek world that i get really excited about gearhead i'm not a gear person like kind of not at all i get really into good picks yeah you're like pick crazy i've seen you like picks you have a lot of picks i have a lot of picks you have fancy picks like you know i'll say can i try that pick you're like yes but make sure you give it back to me because this is like a 35 dollar pick yeah it's true i use a 35 dollar pick all the time it's a blue chip pick yeah, what it's a, a jazz style blue chip pick, actually. So this is the pick used most of the time. Yeah, on my BD, it's my pick of choice. And it's thick. No, it's skinny, but it is not flexible at all. It's okay. a thin pick that's very rigid. So I love the sound of a rigid pick. Yeah. For flat picking, and then, mm-hmm. and even on a guitar. But when I go to strum the dulcimer with a rigid pick or a thick pick, I get a clackety clackety. So. What, how do you deal with that? I think that I don't strum over the fretboard a lot, but I do some because sometimes I hear it. A lot of it is getting the angle of the pick so that I'm really not ever going straight across my fretboard or straight across the strings. I'm always, always, always at an angle. I think that makes a big difference. So when I had my blue chip pick worked on, because as it turns out, when you buy a $35 pick and the edges start getting rough... They'll actually rebevel the edges oh, for you. Funny. It's really cool. So I've had my pick reshaped, and uh, when I turned my my pick that I've been using for about a year, year and a half, took it to Blue Chip. They called me and they said, "Hey, we're working on your pick, and we usually put a round bevel on these picks, but you've worn a right-handed bevel into yours. Do you yeah. want us to leave the right-hand bevel, oh, or do you want us to take it back to a round bevel?" So I think I wore that right-hand bevel into it because I'm always going across my strings at an angle i'm never going straight across the strings 
And I think that has something to do with eliminate. And you just have to like, you have to not have the pick dig into the fretboard. Right. So you have to get a lot better at how deep your pick is going right. down. And so I had to work a lot on that. And I had to, I had to hit my thumb and my fingers on my strings because I was holding it so close to the point and then I was getting sloppy. Mm -hmm. And still, every once in a while, like most of the time, I don't hit my fingers ever. But every once in a while, I get tired and I'm just wailing on strumming all like crazy and I'll slam it into my thumb or my fingers. And it's a really good reminder that I need to pay attention to my right hand again because it hurts. That's, well, I... Um, I I've been playing these Terry McCafferty dulcimers lately yeah. and... I actually had him, you know, extend the strum hollow. Uh-huh. So I gave up some notes because I didn't want to have anything under the strings there. Yeah. And, um... Yeah, it's a hard balance because I almost always the sweet spot on a dulcimer is somewhere where the fretboard is. See? Yeah. 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 But, and, and for me, it's like, I wish I could flat pick always right around the 12th fret. Yeah. But... The strings are so floppy there when I get going really fast. It's like the strings are not where I think they should be. And mm -hmm. so I tend to play over the strum hollow where the strings are seem to move less. Yeah, I think I do that on fast tunes. So what do you want to get better at? What do you Like when you look at um, the way you play the dulcimer and the kind of stuff you want to do, what do you want to get better at in the next few years? I want to not suck at playing in B. That's on my list. <laughs> B is hard. It's in a funny place on the dulcimer, and so it's just hard. Well, you're one, four, and five, and B. You got your B, E, A. No, no, I'm sorry. B, B E, F sharp. Yeah. Why? How did I go to that? And I was thinking fourths. <laughs> we just taught fourths. B E A D G C F. That's hilarious. Yeah, so you got B, E, and, and F sharp. If you are in D A D and you're playing without a capo, you have no. You can never hit an open string. It's always a disaster if you hit an open string. Well, let's get that straight. It's so usually B a disaster. B major is a B, D sharp, F sharp. Yeah. So no open strings there. Right. For E, you've got E, G sharp, B. Yeah. And for the five chord, you got F sharp, A sharp, C sharp. Yeah, it's always a disaster if you hit an open string. It's, it's, you know the dulcimer? Here's the thing. Here's the thing about the dulcimer. We're playing with our hands on the top. Yeah. And we have to do most things very linear compared to most instruments. Like we have to go, we have to move our we left hand up left and down right. a lot. Yeah. yeah. Well, here's the thing I'm thinking is our fingertips are, when we're strumming and when we're fretting, our finger our fingertips are pointing away from us. Yes. Now, when you play guitar, your right hand fingertips point away from you. And your left hand fingertips point towards you. Yeah. So you have these opposing hands. And I actually think that with guitar, it's easier to mute and play cleanly. Um, oh, because interesting. my right hand covers the strings closest to me for, to quiet them. The left hand on the guitar would cover the strings farthest away from me. So you, But then on the dulcimer, we don't get that. And I, I just find that on the mountain dulcimer, it's easier to get some renegade, noisy string action happening when you don't mean to. 
Yeah. Which in the key of B is apparently not good. Well, and I think that also on the dulcimer, we're taught to strum everything. Like the first thing you learn is to strum all the strings while you play melody on a single string. Mm -hmm. So we're used to making sounds on all the strings at once. So when you start trying to only make it on one string, it's like a whole new world. And I'm not always super competent at only hitting the string I intend to. You know, Aaron O'Rourke's got this thing going on with his right hand where he's had the strings moved closer together. But on his left hand, he's kept them uh, farther apart. So they actually angle. The strings get closer the farther you get to the bridge. Yeah. That's a fascinating concept. Isn't it? Should we be trying that? I don't know, because part of me thinks if my strings are closer together, then I'm going to hit the wrong one even more often. But look at guitar. I know. They're all really close together. It's true. I had a friend who was learning guitar, and he used to do string warm-ups where he would just play one single string for like 10 minutes back and forth. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm trying to get the tone to be exactly perfect on every (laughs) single note. And I said, are you ever going to do two strings? He said, I don't have one string perfect yet. What if we just played one string, only one string, for 10 minutes a day? What would that do to our playing? Have you ever thought about that? I catch myself playing more on a single string in concert, especially when the room has a nice reverberation to it, like Mm -hmm. an echo. Mm -hmm. When you hit one string, and I do a short, like a staccato note, bop, bop, about like that, bop, you hit that note, and in the right room, you hear it ringing all throughout the room. So I find when I perform somewhere with a nice room like that, mm-hmm. I enjoy playing on a single string where I'm not even hitting the other two. And I do it a lot more. But if I'm on a hay wagon <laughs> in the middle of July out in the sun where you have zero reverberation. Um, but I, I love to play, and I just, I recently performed in New York City with Wilma Jensen. She was on Pipe Organ. Yeah. There's, we played at, um, we played in this big church, and um, to have that reverb, it <laughs> gives, a, it makes our instrument bigger. Yeah, right. But I think, I think a lot of instruments play single string stuff, and, and mountain dulcimers have done less. Sometimes it can be a little wimpy sound, and you really got to work to pull the tone out of it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And your instrument, natural. Your instrument makes a big difference in whether it's even got the oomph in it to play single string stuff and not just sound wimpy. But also, your right hand technique makes a big difference in that. What's the. What's the difference between a a bluegrass festival and a dulcimer festival? You guys, you and your sister did a lot of bluegrass festivals. Yeah, so once we decided that we didn't want to live in Denver for the rest of our lives, one month actually turned out to be enough. (laughs) (laughs) The only other thing we knew that musicians do is tour, so we figured, well, we should try that. So we planned a tour to North Carolina. Um, I was teaching at Western Carolina University, that first year that we graduated from school. And uh, so we thought, well, why not make that into a tour? So we started playing, like, coffee shops, art centers, bluegrass festivals. We played a couple folk festivals, some dulcimer festivals. And, you know, every festival has its own personality. But dulcimer festivals tend to be real centered around 
the instruction part. Yeah. And so you go to a dulcimer festival and you might have like six hours a day that's instruction and then maybe one or two hours that are concerts. And you go to a bluegrass festival and you probably got 12 hours a day that are concerts and somewhere interspersed in there like twice a day there's a one-hour workshop. And the workshops are different at the bluegrass They're festival. more like demonstrations really than they are teaching People give questions a song. And- uh-huh. And so bluegrass festivals, by and large, unless you go to like a bluegrass camp where they're really focusing on instruction, right, or Rocky Grass Academy or Camp Bluegrass at South Plains College, most of the time the festivals are really just about you've got performers on stage and you got parking lot jam sessions where... And see, at a dulcimer festival, a jam session is usually like 50 mountain dulcimers in a room, and maybe there's also a bass, and maybe there's like my sister playing fiddle and two other people with other instruments, and that's about it. And I remember Amber used to sometimes say, anytime I come in the room with my fiddle, about eight dulcimer players leave because they're scared because there's another instrument in the room. At a bluegrass festival, when you're in a jam session, if there's more than two of one instrument and somebody comes by with another of that instrument, in general, they're going to walk on by and find another one. And so if there's 500 people at a bluegrass festival, there's probably a solid 50 different jam sessions yeah. going on at any given time. And so every you, nook and cranny. Yeah, so at, you walk around and there's just tons of little jams going. And so if you sit down in one jam and they're playing all songs in B and you think I don't I don't have it in me to tackle B all night then you go to the next one and they're probably playing D tunes yeah and sometimes we'll have a slow jam a song jam a fiddle jam and you know but um it does tend to be one big thing yeah the dulcimer right and 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 usually the dulcimer jams are in more of an old-time style where everyone plays the melody all the time And so if you can play melody, you play melody. And if you're figuring things out, you might play chords. But by and large, people are just, everybody's playing the melody. And at a bluegrass festival, if two people are playing the melody, somebody's stomping on someone else. We pass, you pass it around. And so everybody gets a turn. And if you sing a song, then in between the verses, you sing a verse and a chorus, and then you look around the circle and you throw a lead to somebody, and so they take a solo part, and then you come back and sing a verse and a chorus. But in general, sometimes at the very end, they'll say everybody play, but for the most part, only one person at a time is playing, so it's very much about listening to each other, and you spend more time playing accompaniment than you spend playing melodic things. Yeah. So... I mean, I honestly feel like my strength as a musician is in playing rhythm and backup and accompaniment. And when when my sister and I were touring a lot and we were performing as scenic roots, she was singing or playing fiddle, and both of those are ma- mainly like a melodic thing. And, and you so had to be the band. I was the whole rhythm section, yeah. and I was playing all of the accompaniment part. And so I'm trying to figure out how can I play the bass line and the mandolin chop and the guitar part and sometimes the banjo rolls all at the same time. It's impossible. You can't actually do it all. You only have three strings, but you can bring in a lot of those concepts from all the different instruments, put them in different places, and it starts to feel like a full sound even with only three strings and either a fiddle part or a vocal part going along with it. That's what's cool about you guys. Um... And as far as a dulcimer player, you you've 
you've been in the jazz thing, you've done some Irish stuff, some blues stuff, uh, where you were actually in an ensembles that were rehearsing to perform. Yeah. And then you and your sister, you had to work out your duet, and you, you did IBMA, International Bluegrass... Music Association yeah. Conference. Um, you went to workshops, mm-hmm. you know, where uh, you... Um, you guys played in coffee houses and yeah. bars and stuff, and yeah, we did a whole coffee house tour one year. We just played lots and lots I of mean, coffee you, shops, you know, house concerts. That's something you can't. The experience of that and and how that makes you better, you can't buy that. You got to do that. Yeah, you really do. You have to do that. So, what's the, the most shows you guys did, or most gigs, let's say, in a year? Do you have any idea? You know, we were consistently be on the road. 200 days a year for a few years in there how many years three you think three years we were probably on the road for 175 to 200 days you're the real deal (laughs) and we played 150 shows average a year that's a lot that's a lot that's a lot and we were booking it all ourselves and you guys you took a lot of classes where they taught marketing advertising websites you had a MySpace thing going on back in the day. <laughs> back in the day, F- uh, Facebook got in right at the end of MySpace, I think. But you guys, um, you kind of you were a good team, so she did mm-hmm. a lot of the driving. Yeah, and she liked the business negotiation part of it. Yeah, which is my least favorite part, man. When you have to talk to somebody about money, I'm like, oh, get me out of here! I hate talking about money. It's I can do it, but it's not my thing. But she, like, really enjoyed that part of it, and she really enjoyed selling stuff at the end of every show. So we had this whole thing because I'm I'm sort of the touchy-feely person, and she's sort of the do-business person. So I would stand in front of the merch table, and I would give hugs to all the little old people who (laughs) were like, oh, I just love you guys. And then she would take their money. It was really a perfect team effort. (laughs) That's that's, um, being on the road and doing a lot of gigs will make you a better musician. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there's this comedian who gives advice on how to be a... Like, if you want to get into comedy, she says, do like 100 open mics in a row where you don't prepare at all and you just bomb. And she <laughs> said most of them are like three to five minute spots. And you just... You go up there and you just disappoint the audience 100 times in a row. And she said... That's step one. Yeah. Because you can't be afraid of your audience. It's true. And, you know, and step two, you know, is the right stuff. And But um, it seems like just getting out there and doing this, like you see these bands and you think, like there was a big mon, is that a band? What do they call? It's a, mm, it oh, was a shoot. record anyway. Ah, oh, forget. But it was some, it was some super group of these young guys all playing bluegrass. Yeah. And... They sounded to me absolutely perfect, passionate, accurate, interesting, just uh, traditional plus modern, and it was just fierce. Yeah. Well, part of that stuff, I think, comes from playing every night in a different town. Right. For a long, long time. Right. I knew a guy, um, Ephraim, who was playing banjo. And I think he met up with Tim O'Brien and some other guys, and they were like, you need to go on the road. I just remember hearing the story. They said, we're going to bring you on the road. You're going to play bass because you need some road time, you know? Mm-hmm. You look at it almost like a um, just a way to kind of align you and get you straightened out and everything. 
Man, I'm telling you, there's nothing that puts the pressure on more than having a, a date on the calendar that you're performing. And Amber and I used to do things like put a song we didn't know very well on the set list for that night so that we would have to woodshed on it between this show and the next one. Because when it's on the set list, you're it's like, all right, we're going to sink or swim and we're going to do it. We try not, you know, you try to put one of those a night on the set list where you really got to... The pressure's on. You got to pull it out. You got to get it, figure out how to make it happen. And when you put that pressure on yourself, it's amazing what you accomplish. Whereas, I mean, I'm not very good at being self-motivated without some pressure on the end. That makes a big difference. It's, and so it's I think having this, yeah, it's, it's like pressure. having performance days means you're going to practice because you're playing again tomorrow. You got to get it right. one of the right. coolest things about a contest. The naysayers of contests have plenty of bad things to say about contests. But one of the best things about a contest is you have a date to work towards. Yeah. You know, you told me that when I was 12 in a workshop that I needed to enter the contest. I said that? Yeah, you did. And you you said, you won't win it. Just enter for the experience. Did I say you won't win it? Yeah, because I wasn't that good. I was I 12. I might have said you might not win it, but. <laughs> Maybe you might not win it, but. but <laughs> the 12-year-old should something different. Yeah, probably. Well, you should enter, and then when you're good enough to win, you won't be nervous because you will have had that experience, and it will make you practice. It will make you learn some songs really good. I about this now. And, you know, I am so thankful that I started entering the National Mountain Dolsmar Contest when I was 13. Because it made me work on songs. It made me really think about how to arrange. It made me think about how, how to communicate something to the audience. And also, because 12-year-old heard you're, never, you're not going to win it, I never, ever entered the contest with the goal of winning. I or with the goal <laughs> <laughs> with the goal of the judges being excited about it. Like, I, I always was like, I just want to play something that I love and that will make someone in the audience have an experience or feel something see that's the right one person in the audience like so i was always looking for my my dad used to tell me aaron you got to stop looking at the audience all the time you got to pay attention to what you're doing because i would look around the audience and i would forget what song i was playing see that's beautiful and i'm I'm gonna get in trouble here but (laughs) some of these people that hate contests They've entered contests yeah, with a bad done attitude. <laughs> and then they hate contests yeah. because their only perspective is their bad attitude. I know I'm going to get some emails <laughs> about this. But your attitude is the right way. And I always say, man, what a great opportunity, a contest. What a great opportunity to share music with people. It really and, is. And the Mountain Dolls Summer competitions, generally, there's a great camaraderie backstage. Oh, man. I loved it. I, that's how I met Dulcimer players. I started entering this contest, and then I started meeting all the people who were also entering the contest. And 13-year-old kid from Kansas was like, other people play Dulcimer. This is magic. And I just loved being backstage and meeting other people. Sharing ideas. I got my noter backstage at the but National you're an Mountain Dulcimer. Yeah, well, See, that's probably true. See, if you were a true. pessimist, it'd be different. <laughs> but you, yeah, I always entered with the goal of working on a song, and and really focusing on how am I going to arrange, how am I going to communicate a message in only two songs. Then I would look in the audience for who's going to receive the message, and I would play to that person, and that was it. And I want to be fair because. Um, it's easy for me to make light of somebody's experience. 
you know, somebody might have a negative experience at a contest, and here I am making yeah, fun of it. It but happens. I, I want to tell what happened last night. So you, I was a piano major, but I'm not a good sight reader. Yeah. I think I, like you said to me last night, you might could be a better sight reader. Yeah. But last last not night, might, you could. You gave me the first piano lesson I've had in many years. Yeah. And you're a good sight reader. Yeah. So, um. I instantly, ladies and gentlemen, felt very nervous, very on the spot. I felt hot, like my body temperature went up. Um, she was telling me she would grab my finger and move it or grab my wrist and move it. And it was, I felt completely nervous, anxious, and I wanted to shrink away and it felt painful. And it was because I'm doing something I'm not good at, you know? Right. Yeah. And, um... So I, I don't want to make fun of people having anxiety attacks because I think I almost had one last night when you were giving me a piano lesson. Not that much, but it was like, I'm so bad at this. Uh, but it was good. Yeah. And it's good to remember that. Like, we, we taught this three-day. If you're not careful, if you here's what you need. This is one very important thing that will help you be a better teacher is to remember what it was like to be mm -hmm. a student. Mm -hmm. And to remember it in great detail. Mm -hmm. To remember what it's like when the teacher talks too much. To remember what it's like when the teacher gets impatient. To remember what it's like when they're just handing out way too much music in an hour. Mm -hmm. You know, to remember what it's like to have little voices in your head that say, maybe I am stupid. Maybe I'm not talented. Mm -hmm. Um I wonder if I can get good at this. You know, all that. I really think one of the best teachers for me has been remembering the process of remembering what it was like to be a student. Yeah. You know, sort of tongue-in-cheek, my husband has said to me, why don't you learn to play the dulcimer left-handed? But I've actually thought, what if I did? Because I think it would help me remember what it feels like to not be able to execute a thing I know how to do. Because sometimes... Right. In workshops, people understand the concepts, but they can't make their fingers do it yet. And it's been a long time since I couldn't make my fingers do what I want them to do. Because I've spent a lot of hours in the closet teaching my fingers how to do what I tell them to do. <laughs> but what if I turned my dulcimer around and I tried to play it with my other hands? I think I might have to do that just for the experience of not being able to play what I, I want to. I went through a phase where I did it. And it's... It's really great because if I was really talented, it would have gone better. <laughs> that's what I remember thinking. You know, that's a good, that's a good, we talked about the definition of talent, you know. It's, Which is not an easy It's thing not that it pay, just comes but, naturally. But I remember I couldn't hold the pick. The pick, I kept falling out of my fingers. Uh -huh. When I went to strum back and forth, everything felt foreign. There was a hundred foreign things that I experienced. Um, my fingers didn't have calluses. I mean, it's just, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And it reminds you of what it's like to be a beginner. Yeah. And, um, one reason I did it too, was because there's this whole argument about, well, not argument, but this whole thing about somebody says I'm left-handed. Should I strum with my left hand or right hand? And mm -hmm. there's many opinions on that, but yeah, one reason I flipped it around is I wanted to see if I could get better at strumming with the left hand and mm -hmm. I did mm -hmm. I got a lot better and I did this for a number of weeks off and on and I got better did and my current opinion is I 
when somebody says, should I strum with the left or right hand or should I string the dulcimer up left, right hand or whatever, I, my opinion, I, I, I say it much more politely, but I really don't think it matters. I know yeah. if you've, if you've strummed guitar for, for 12 years, then you probably ought to keep strumming with whatever hand you were doing, but right. you have to teach your hands to do new things. Both hands have a heck of a lot of work ahead of them. Yeah, they really do. I don't know. And both hands have to be very rhythmic. You know, we often say the rhythm's on the right hand, but I just, I think the rhythm is in you. The rhythm has to be in your whole body. Yeah. It has to be in both hands. Yeah, because a lot of times my my students who are struggling, it's because their right and left hand aren't in time with each other. One or the other hand is behind. And that's what makes the notes not stay clear, ring true, or you get those notes that don't ring. It's because your two hands aren't quite in time with each other. What What's um, a student, like what's uh, the hardest kind of student to teach? Hmm. Well, I mean, honestly, the ones who don't practice. Well, you mean when they don't play at all. That, that right. Matter. If you come to me and you take a lesson and then I see you again in two weeks and you haven't worked on anything... I kind of have to just give you the same lesson over again, but you're not going to like that. So I have to try and come up with new ways of saying the same thing because until you practice it, I can't really give you the next information. So what I tell people is don't pay me if you're, you know, like go practice and then pay me. And a lot of times I'm not a real big believer in weekly lessons for the most part. I have a, uh, I have one student who wants weekly lessons. But for the most part, I do a lesson with students and I tell them, when you're ready, you call me and we'll have another lesson. And that might be two weeks and it might be six weeks and it might be six months. And I'm kind of okay with that because I'd rather you take the information I give you and work on it and then come back to me and say, I'm ready for the next information. That's m- my personal opinion. I mean, we... People always ask me who taught you to play dulcimer, and the truth is, I don't like to say it out loud, but I I taught myself how to play the dulcimer. Yeah. Now, I could also say I had many teachers. Yeah. But really, it comes down to you working stuff out on your own with a passion and drive, you know, and... um, solving problems and and going to other and going to teachers like i i had one official lesson with david schnaufer there might have been two but really where did i learn the most from him it was hanging out with him and watching him and asking him questions and studying him on video and listening to him at half speed on an audio tape machine um so for me the hardest students to work with are the ones who want the teacher to basically do almost everything yeah now if I find somebody like that, am I mad at them? No. <laughs> I mean, I tell people, if you don't want to practice because you have a busy life, um, just let me know. Just mm-hmm. let me know when you're not practicing. We'll do something different every time. Yeah. If this, you know, if this is your chill out time, just let me know. I don't want you coming in here scared to death. But I mean, I had a student one time who was always, I love said student, by the way. <laughs> But said student was always talking about all the different workshops they were taking. Yeah. And how this teacher didn't do this right. Or this teacher, it was just a constant bunch of stories about these different teachers. And and I was like, hey, 
you got to be your own best teacher ultimately. Mm-hmm. It, you know, and we would have we go back and forth on this, but um, I mean, it's like that in anything in life. Like, think of somebody who's who wants to be an accountant and they love working with spreadsheets and they're studying that on their own and they've got a business calculator and they're reading the manual and they're try- making up their own practice problems and they get on Yahoo and have a fake investing account so they can learn about, all- you know, it's like, that's the student you want to work with. Right. Because all you got to do, like, this is what I've felt with you over the years. You've never really been like a student of mine, but you- I always knew you were working on stuff. So if I just dropped a few things in, in your way, yeah. six months later, three years later, there's going to be something cool coming from it. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, I can still distinctly remember a lot of those, like, little things that you dropped at me. Like, here's here's one thing. Go work on it. There's definite pros and cons to having grown up in a place where there were no other mountain dulcimers. So cons would be sometimes it took me way longer to figure stuff out than it should have. And I didn't have somebody who could just show me the next thing when I was ready for it. But the pros were that when I did get somebody to show me something, that's all I had to work on for the next six months or a year until I saw another dulcimer player. And I also tell students a lot, don't just learn from or listen to people who play the same instrument as you. Part of the reason that I play the way I do is because most of my influences weren't dulcimer players. I got real excited when I was around other dulcimer players because it was a special treat to actually watch the fingers of someone whose instrument looked like mine. But most of what I learned and listened to and picked up from musicians was people who played other instruments. Yeah, I agree. And I think I think that's true of a lot of people that I talk to. Like Aaron O'Rourke talks about this, studying other instruments. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been... I've got a bunch of favorite dulcimer players. Yeah, me too. But I can't help but pay attention to non-dulcimer yeah. instrumentalists. Probably more. And even saxophone, harp, piano, you know, all kinds of stuff. You know, I can start to think, I'm pretty good at this dulcimer thing. And then... I go listen to, like, a really great mandolin player, a guitar player, and I'm like, wait, oh, man, I suck at playing Okay, well, music. let me change that I gotta for you. got to start over. I can go listen to a bad mandolin player, <laughs> and sometimes I'm thinking, I really ought to learn some of that stuff. <laughs> right, yeah. We're, we're kind of insulated a little bit. We can be. And so... It's not all bad, but it's not all good either, I think. There's a plenty of good Pros stuff about it, but I, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. Right. You know, there there's all kinds of stuff going on around here. Um, there's a place, there's a jazz uh, workshop in town where you can sign up for lessons and they start new lessons each season and stuff. And there's group and private and you can play in ensembles. And I've had, I've I've done a little bit of private piano lesson with with one teacher. But I I emailed her and talked about the possibility of me playing dulcimer now in a jazz combo and taking classes. I I want to do that. Yeah. Uh, the problem is I'm gone too much, you right. know. But yeah. I wanna I wanna get out there where the pressure's higher. Right. Uh You know, this thing that happens sometimes. 
Like, I'll be around a bunch of dulcimer players, and you can just start to hear the complaint starts to rise up. And this is performers, you know. We This complaint starts to come out of the group. Not just from one person either, but it's like, we wish we got a little more respect uh-huh. from the rest of the music world or from the rest of the listener world. And I always come back to this. We can earn that respect. Yeah, I think so. I mean, sometimes we're sitting here complaining that we're not getting the respect. We we don't have the chops sometimes. Ah, uh, yeah. Now, yeah. I'm not saying that across the board we don't ever. But um, I am somewhere near the upper echelon of dulcimer players. Yeah. Is that a word? It is a word. Thank you. I think you used it correctly, too. That's amazing. But I don't know. Dan's not here, so we can't test That's that right. for sure. Look it up, Dan. Um, but he would say when I, when I say I'm in the upper echelon, he would say extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. (laughs) So at least Uh I'm learning something from him. But, um, but I know the reality is when I go out there in town and play with some of these guys in Nashville, I feel like a beginner. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not saddened by that. I think it's good for me. And I Mm -hmm. really, I'll tell you what I want to get better at. I want to get better at, at, like, as always, I want to get better at, I'd love to get better at bluegrass solos. Me too. And I don't want, I'm not in a phase right now where I want to innovate. I really want to emulate. Right. Uh Uh-huh. Tony Rice solos. Yeah. Me too. And I want to. We should work on that. I'd I'd love to get better at that. Um, You've done a lot of work transcribing solos. I did. I need to do more again. I'm Actually, hanging out with you this week has made me want to go transcribe solos. That's kind of weird. Like, who wants to do that? But I do right well, now. Well, tell people I'm what really that excited means. To. So you're listening to a record, and you're listening, say, uh, say I did the dobro part at school. So I'm listening to the dobro part, and I'm trying to write down what notes the dobro player is playing. So I'm listening, and I'm trying. For me, I listen, I find it on my instrument, and then I can write it down. So I'm not good enough at, at hearing it and just saying, oh, yeah, he's playing a B. I can't do that on perfect pitch. But what tools did you use back when you were doing that? Uh, so I use a software program called Transcribe. It's Transcribe exclamation point. Hey, that's the same one I use. Well, I love good. Transcribe. Because and so, you can loop something and slow it down, and yeah. you can tune it a little or change the pitch completely. Yeah, you can change the key, which so is... you use that a lot. Yeah, and that's great, too, if you're working on singing something. So, like, if I'm trying to learn to sing a song that Tony Rice sings, um, my vocal range is not the same as his, so I can actually move the whole recording to a key that I could sing it with, and then I can sing along in that key. That's useful. But you're right. You're you're trying to write down every. I'm note. trying to write down note for note the solos that a, a whatever instrument I'm listening to. And in to that is process, playing. you typically get it in your ear so well mm-hmm. that you've now altered your musical brain quite a bit. Yeah. But you can also look on the paper and you can study and analyze and and make some abstractions about what's going on. I guess. Yeah, and if you do enough of the same person, which I, I guess I, did a lot of different solos by different people so i didn't necessarily study one person exclusively because again i'm listening for a lot of different instruments and trying to draw from different instruments but if you were to study one person's solos you would figure out a lot of 
their patterns because we all have patterns we all have licks we really like we all have things that are like our favorite thing to play and whatever is the new thing we just learned we play way too much it always happens every person does it it's kind of like you know there's different interest in music there's always the um the person with the busy life who's looking for a little fun and peace yeah and they, they enjoy getting a new song, but they, they got other interests. They got other hobbies. Maybe they have a job. Maybe they've got, they're taking care of an aging adult or something at home, like a parent. Um, there's some people really, and there's nothing at all. Right? It's, it's actually even admirable. <laughs> they have chosen the dulcimer to have a little fun and peace in their life. Yeah. Then there's other, there's other folks who they want to go deep. Mm-hmm. Um, in the dulcimer world, they want to go deep dulcimer. Mm-hmm. But then I think there's a third area, and there's probably 17. But anyway, there's somebody who wants to just go deep in music, period, which involves reading music, writing music, composing, improvising, memorizing, whatever, music theory, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, those are the people who are crazy. They need therapy. You're one of those <laughs> That's people. That's us. <laughs> I think you're one of those people. You're I'm like, definitely one of those people. I'm going to talk to Dan about making, you know, you. Uh, we got to make you an honorary dulcimer geek because we get students. Like we this, this, this uh, week when we taught the chromatic three-day, you know, we told everybody, we know we've got seven chromatic dulcimer players, two teachers. We're all in one room. Mm-hmm. Uh, seven students. It was magical. It was great. But we've got different <laughs> levels, different yeah. interests. But the we're, we're, we are crazy. Like That's the one thing I've always appreciated about you. We can talk about theory <laughs> uh-huh. and go nutsoid. Yeah, and I won't ever get tired of talking about theory. And we act, I always feel like I come away with some goals or some new realization or something. Yeah. Like that. We figured a couple cool things out this week. And it's fun to do that with students, but not everybody wants that. But the thing is, there are some who want it. Yeah. And it's it's so tricky as a teacher. You know, I don't want to run off the people who just want to have some fun. Right. But I also want to make sure I give some nourishment to the people who are nuts in the same (laughs) way we are. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't recommend this life for everybody. Like, sometimes if... I feel like I played a little bit of a role in encouraging you to be a full-time dulcimer player. That's crazy. It is crazy. Like, sh- I, don't, I don't feel guilty, but maybe you I shouldn't. should. No. You know, what's funny is my parents always said, you should play music to love it and to enjoy it and do it as a hobby. You should never do this as a career unless you just absolutely have to. I mean, our parents were pretty open about, like, this is a hard life and look at musicians and how they live and how they travel and make sure you want that life if you really decide to pursue it. So I decided I wasn't going to be a full-time musician. I was going to go into music therapy. That's where I started my school. And it just didn't work because it turns out that I am not nearly passionate about enough about classical piano to pull off getting a master's degree with a piano emphasis so i got way way late on that and decided that wasn't that was not the track that i was going down because what i love is the dulcimer and then i have traveled and i've explored and i've gotten to play with some really amazing musicians and and i'm teaching kids a bunch right now and like i love every part of it and i just feel like my life is I I feel like every day of my life is a little bit magical. I get to create things and there's 
always so much to learn and to work on. But while I'm doing all of that to make myself a better human and better musician, I also get to share this little snippet that can hopefully bring a little joy and nourishment to someone else's life. That's just like the greatest thing ever. I love it. That's That's good stuff. I'm not not sad that you were part of convincing me that it works okay to be a full-time Mountain Dulcimer player. I think you're doing all right. (laughs) Aaron, may I want to thank you for hanging out with me today? Yeah. And, uh... It's been real fun. Don't be a stranger. We've got to get you on here with Dan and Aaron one day. Yeah. Because uh, they need somebody to whip them into shape, man. (laughs) And in the meantime, I'll catch you in my kitchen. (laughs) I'll listen to you in my kitchen. (laughs) That's right. I'm not going to be sneaking in your kitchen. (laughs) 